Okay, Father's Day. You know, the, the thing that makes a father happiest is to talk about his children or his grandchildren, whatever the case may be. Now, what makes me happy today, basically, is to talk about my kids, but you don't need to hear my, about my children right now. But I want to talk about the Son of God. I want to talk about Him. That makes me happy to be able to tell you about Jesus, the Son of God. That's what I intend to do. Now, we have been reading, if you've been with us for the last six weeks, some of you have and some haven't, and some are now just joining us, but we've been talking about the, uh, the things in Ephesians chapter 4, the subjects, and I, I, I took them out of order deliberately to, to discuss them with you, but the order I put them in was that there is one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and you all. That was number one. And the second one was one Lord, that was Jesus. And the third one was one Spirit, that, that's the Spirit of God, then one faith, one baptism, and one hope. And I saved this one, the one body, because actually the writer of the book of Ephesians, which is the Apostle Paul, was talking to these people and telling them, you need to do something. What you need to do is keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I've given you seven things, seven things that will hold everything together. He's saying to them, I want you to all stay together. Now, I have, uh, I'm going to put something on the board, which is a little different, uh, because I, I want you to know something about the people at Ephesus. Th these, were, these were folks that were calling on the name of the Lord. These were people who had stepped out of their world and stepped into the world of Jesus Christ. These were people who were trying to go to heaven, trying to, trying to do what Jesus told us to do. Now, when Jesus arose from the dead, He took His apostles aside and He taught them for about 40 days. And then, on top of the mountain, He, he talked to them and He said, Go ye into all the world, talking to these apostles. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Amen. He that believeth not shall be damned. On, on Matthew, that's Mark's account, Mark chapter 16, 16, 15, 16. In Matthew's account, he says, he told them, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always unto the end of the world, end of the earth. Okay. So now what the Ephesians were supposed to be doing, when, when Paul came to them, and he came, he came to this group of people, and he taught them about Jesus Christ, and he taught them to do what Jesus said he wanted them to do, and that was, they were supposed to preach the gospel. And they were supposed to teach their neighbor. They were supposed to make sure that everything stuck together. That all the people that they converted and they taught were supposed to hang together. And they were supposed to make sure that they were only teaching about one God the Father. They, they, they were supposed to only recognize one Lord, which is Jesus. He's the one with the authority. All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth, Jesus said. They were supposed to recognize that the Holy Spirit was to guide them into all truth and show them what they had to do, or were supposed to be doing. 
They were supposed to be in the faith, walking in the faith, trusting in God. And they were supposed to maintain that, make sure everybody knows that. And they're supposed to be teaching their neighbors and teaching them to be baptized. And then teaching them to have a hope. And that hope was heaven after a while, that their sins could be forgiven. That's why Jesus came to this earth, because we were lost. We're careening through space and time, and we're heading for ultimate disaster. This world's not going to last forever. I'm not either. I'm certainly not going to, and you're not either. But, but God said He's going to destroy this earth. Well, what's going to happen after that? Well, that's the point of one hope of your calling. Okay. Now then, what about these people? Let, let's, let's take a look at them just real quickly because he's talking to these folks and by extension, if you read this, he's talking to you too. And he's talking to me. He's telling me, Bill, I want you to be sure and make sure that you only teach that there's one God and Father. That you only teach people that there's only one Lord. You only teach people that there's, that there's only one Holy Spirit and all, all what He does. There's only one baptism. There's only one hope. There's only one faith. And who's going to do that? The one body. Ha. The one body. That's the one that's supposed to be doing it. Now, look here. Let's see if I can get this to work. This was, this was the, the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was a port city on a major river that flowed into the Aegean Sea. And that port city was one of the most important cities. It's, it was in western Turkey. And it was probably the most important port city of the ancient times of that time. And it was the most prosperous. And you can see some of the ruins. This is, this is the part of the uh, ruins of the Temple of Artemis or Diana. And that's where people came in Ephesus to worship one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This, the image of Diana was supposedly made of silver, and it was stood up 60 feet tall. And the, the area around it was about 500 by 600 square feet around it. Not square feet, but 500 feet by one way, 600 another, probably 2,400 square feet was the temple area. And this was where people came to worship Diana, idolaters. And the, the, uh, the impact of the temple was that the priests who served there were also the shipmasters or they, they were the harbor masters. They were the port authority. So when the ships came in and the ships were laden with all their goods and, and all their treasures, when they came into the port, they had to report to the priest at the temple of Diana. And they made their money. They had to pay a toll and a fee and so forth. Also at that temple of Diana, the priest provided prostitutes. So that when the sailors came to shore, they came for a party. And that's where they came. They came to the temple of Diana and there is where they had their orgies. And the priest made sure that they had that and they charged them. It was kind of like the priests were modern day or ancient day pimps. They were providing for prostitution and parties and orgies. So when the sailors came in and they unloaded their laden ships, then they came to this temple and that's where they had their parties. 
Okay. That's what was going on in that area. Ephesus was a, was a prosperous place. Matter of fact, they had so much money. And by the way, I want to mention one other thing. The temple and the priest at the temple were the bankers. They were the bankers. They were the ones where people came to get money. And they were the ones where people came to store their money. They were the bankers. They were the, they were harbor masters. They were the bankers. They were pimps. They were the party, party makers. So here was a city that was jumping with sin. You know, how else could you describe it? I heard not long ago of how many thousands of sailors went ashore in Honolulu uh, before the war, World War II, and after World War II, and, and uh, what, a, what a tragedy they, they visited upon the, on the Hawaiians. 20,000 at one time would come into that shore, and they were all wanting to do something that wasn't nice, or most of them were. Well, that's what was happening here. In addition to this, people came to this city in order to worship the goddess Diana and, and seek a favor. And when they came, they were, they were charged with toll to come into the temple. And then there were the, there were the artisans around, and the, these artisans were silversmiths. And they were a guild. You know what a guild is? G-U-I-L-D. It's kind of like a labor union. Not really a labor union, but it's kind of like that. But a guild was a, a, a cadre of craftsmen. So they had Masonic guilds so that all the craftsmen who knew how to work uh, stone and marble and so forth, all these craftsmen plied their trade and they kind of gathered together and they could make sure that they could keep their trade pure. And that's kind of what a labor union is today in, in that way. And they also... The labor union wants to go to the management and get a raise and so forth and, and benefits. That's not what they were doing. The, the ancient guilds were just holding together and making sure that their craft was good and profitable. So there was a, there was a, a silversmith guild or silver guild where the fellows made little replicas of Diana the goddess and sold them. Like a memento. But the little goddesses that they made, the little images they made, were, were supposed to bring power to the visitors who came to see what was going on. It was such, a, such an attraction that they actually, that, that's a road. Now you can't, you can't see all the road, but in the middle of this thing was a road, and that road led to the temple, and it led from the harbor to the temple. So people coming to visit got on this road, and one thing about this road was that it was not designed for, for uh, carriages. It wasn't designed for wagons. It was designed for foot traffic only because they had steps in it. Foot traffic only. So they wanted people to come, and they wanted to, wanted to make it convenient for them to come to the temple. That's where the prosperity was. And then you had the artisans that were there peddling their mementos and saying, okay, here's so much for this memento, and, and uh, they, they would get their money for that. And they were making a lot of money on that. The city of Ephesus actually was, was uh, extremely prosperous. They had what they called uh, terrace houses. Let's see if I can get another picture up here. Oops. There. 
They had terrace houses. They had six aqueducts in, in the city itself. So they had water, they, and they, they provided water. You, you wonder, well, uh, what did they use the water for? They had baths, you know, kind of like Turkish baths, where people could go and, and uh, have, have a steam bath or just a regular bath and, and with a, a big company of people. So it was pretty well taken up with the idea of worshiping Diana of the Ephesians. Now, Paul came to this place, Ephesus, and this is the amphitheater, and I'll, I'll mention that in just a minute. But Paul came to this city and introduced Jesus Christ to them. Now, I want to mention something else about the city of Ephesus. They had, they had uh, different, uh, well, what can we call them, different communities that were in different places. Let me see if I can uh, let's, let's see if I can uh, call it a borough. Maybe from New York has the city of New York has something like this where they'll they'll have a they'll have a, a section of the city where all Italians live, Little Italy. They'll have a section of the city where all the Polacks live, or Polish people live. They'll have a section of the city where all the Jews live. Section of the city where the black folks live. So they have sections of the city. And that's what was going on in the city of Ephesus. There was a section of the city where all the Jews lived. And there was a large contingent of Jews. And they had a synagogue. So now, when the Apostle Paul came to this city of Ephesus, in chapter 18 of the book of Acts, before he got there, there were two people that were there ahead of him, and that was Ananias and Sapphira. Or, let me see, let me make sure, Aquila and Priscilla, not Ananias and Sapphira. Priscilla and Aquila, and they were from Corinth. They were in the city of Ephesus and had been apparently there teaching about Jesus Christ. Now, we have not very much information about them, but we do know that they were there. And they ran across a fellow by the name of Apollos, Apollo, and he was preaching the baptism of John. He didn't know anything about Jesus that he had come, but he was preaching the baptism of John. And so Priscilla and Aquila took Apollos aside, and they taught him the truth more perfectly. Now when Paul came, they're not mentioned. But in Acts chapter 19, Paul came to the city, and he brought a couple of friends with him. He brought uh, Titus with him, and, and, he, and he brought uh, uh, another young man that was preaching with him, Epicurus, I think. Anyway... When he, when he came to the city, the first place, first thing he ran across was 12 men there who were preaching the baptism of John. Now I want you to think about this just a minute. Here are 12 men in Acts chapter 19 where Paul comes to the city of Ephesus and he runs across 12 men who are preaching the baptism of John. Now John preached, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. These 12 men were over a thousand miles from home. What were they doing in the city of Ephesus preaching the baptism of John? You remember the story of Jonah the prophet? God sent Jonah to the city of Nineveh and said, go preach repentance. And so Jonah decided to go after he was swallowed by fish and taken to the shore. But he went there and he preached that. Well, here were 12 men who apparently felt the need to go preach the baptism of John. And there they were in the city of Ephesus, and they were preaching the baptism of John. 
Paul ran into those fellows and he said, he said, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said, they, they didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. He said, what were you baptized then for? And they said, under the baptism of John, under repentance. And so he taught them and they were baptized for the baptism of repentance by Jesus Christ, baptized, baptized into Christ. And then they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now the purpose of the gift of the Holy Spirit at that point was so that these men could speak. They didn't have the written word like we did. These men could speak and prophesy about Jesus and teach the truth without having to study it like we have to. So they went, they went out doing that. In addition to this, Paul went to the synagogue because he knew that's where they were studying the scriptures. So he went to that section of town, the Jewish section of town, and he found a synagogue, and that's where the Jews met to study the scriptures. He went there, and he, he began to teach them about Jesus in the synagogue. And then this lasted three months, and then they threw him out. They got rid of him. They, they, they took him out. And so it says he, he separated the disciples. He took the disciples with him that were believing in Jesus Christ. And he went to what was called the school of one Tyrannus. And that must have been a Greek school. We don't have any other information about it from history or archaeology. But it must have been a Greek school of some nature. Sort of like an academy today. Anyway, Paul was able to stay there in that school system. A gymnasium maybe, what they call a gymnasium. A school. And he was able to stay there for two years and preach Jesus Christ. And tell these people about Jesus. Now that's what God told Paul to do. Go preach the gospel. While he was there, he decided he would leave. But before he could leave, there was a, there was a fellow by the name of Demetrius who was a silversmith. And he, he saw what was going on, that he was losing, he was losing his guild. Because some of these fellows that were making these little images were quitting it. And they were following Jesus Christ. They were leaving. They were leaving that temple area. So he raised an uproar. And he raised a big commotion. And he raised it among his fellow members of the labor union, the guild. He got these fellows all stirred up. And they got on that road and started toward the temple. And as they went toward the temple making a big ruckus and racket, people began to flood in like they would today. They began to join the circus. And so off they went and they ended up at this place that you see right now. They ended up at this amphitheater. That would seat 25,000 people. That's where they ended up. And they were making an uproar. And they, they, as a matter of fact, on their way, they apparently thought that maybe this was a Jewish uprising because the Jews only believed there's one God. And so they thought maybe, maybe, it, was, maybe it was one of, one of these. And so they, they, uh, they got a couple of Christians along with them, a couple of, by the name of Gaius and Aristarchus. And then they, then they grabbed this Jewish leader, and his name was Alexander, and they put him forward and said, maybe he's responsible for this. That was what they were thinking. But he wasn't even able to talk. And they just kept rushing, got to that amphitheater. And pretty soon the county clerk came out, or the clerk, the leader of this whole area, the magistrate, he came out and said, hey, you, you guys are wrong about what you're doing. You need to quieten this ruckus down or the Romans will come and take away our position. So he got them quietened down. They wouldn't let the Apostle Paul, the other believers, restrain the Apostle Paul and didn't let him go in among the crowd. They probably would have torn him apart. 
But the magistrate got everybody settled down, and he said, you're going to have to quiet this down. You know, uh, I've, got, I've got to tell you, there's a couple of terms here that we're going to run across a little later. He said, this is not a lawful assembly. And if, if they find out about it in Rome, they'll take away our citizenship. Now, what that meant was the Romans protected Ephesus with their armies and with their power. That, that, that was their protection. And they also recognized them as being a legitimate community of, of Roman citizens. So he's saying, you've got, to, you've got to stop this and go home. Okay. Now, the point is, out of that whole milieu arose a group of people called believers. That Paul, when he left, he said, I've got to go. I've got to go. I'll, I'll be back when I can. So he said, I have to go to Jerusalem. So he left. But he wrote them a letter later. He did come back by on another occasion. But he wrote them a letter, and that's the letter we have. And the letter he wrote was written by a fellow, or written, sent by a fellow by the name of Tychicus. Anyway, this letter then is to those people that informed themselves out of that whole situation, and he's calling them, he's calling them the body. He's saying, you, you are the body of Christ. And you have the responsibility, he says, if, you, if you're in Ephesians chapter 4, we read it a while ago, but I'll, I'll just read it again for you just a minute because it's, I think it's very essential that we understand the, the terminology he's using. So he's talking to these people, and what he's saying is, he says, I, I want you to walk worthy of the vocation, that word vocation means the calling. Jesus has called you to do something, wherewith you are called with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now they had the responsibility, just like we have, preach the gospel. Teach all nations teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have taught you. So that was their responsibility. And Paul is saying, hey, you're going to have to do your job. You have to do your job. I want you to keep the unity of spirit. I want you to keep everything together. I want you to be sure and tell everybody about the Father. I want you to tell them about the Son and about the Holy Spirit. I want you to tell them about the faith. I want you to tell them what... I have told you, and what you know to be God's truth. Now, these people that they're supposed they're supposed to be doing now, what he's telling them is, he's saying, "You are the body." Now, in in First Corinthians chapter twelve, verse twenty-seven, the text says, "Now you are the body of Christ, and members in particular. You are the body of Christ." What a statement to make! You are the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12, he says, For the body is one and has many members. All the members of that one body, being many, are one body. So also is Christ. He's telling them that you are, you people, you are the body, and the body is Christ. So now, you, he's saying there is one body. There's only one. And it's you. And you're the one that's supposed to be doing what Jesus wants you to do. 
Romans 12, verse 4 and 5 says, As we have many members in one body, all the members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 kind of details this. Because it talks about the body as Jesus being the head and the body being members. I want to say some things. I, I don't want to jar you, but I do want to shake you up a little bit. The, bob, the body, the Bible never uses the term one church. Never. The body, the Bible uses the term one body. And there is a significant difference. There's a difference, and we'll, we'll explore that just briefly as we go along. But he's saying, you are the one body. In addition to that, the Bible never saying there is one church. The Bible never says anything about a member of the church. Anytime the Bible uses the term member, it uses it in re reference to the body. You're members of the body. Now, we, we, use, we use a lot of terminology, and we've messed things up pretty much in our own thinking along this line. We're not messing things up in the Bible, but we're messing things up in our own mind when we talk about members of the church. When we talk about the Bible talking about one church. Well, we're going to look at this, look at this very carefully because that's, that, that's a significant, significant concept. There is one body, however, he says, and, and he says, you are the one body. Now... Let's go to one other statement, and we'll go past Ephesus here, and go to this frame. The called. The called is the church. That, that's the word. The word church means the called out. Someone who's been called out. Called out from another group. So when we, when we use the term church, and when the Bible uses the term church, the Bible refers to the word, the word church, it refers sometimes to an individual. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 20, it says that, that, that he is called, let him stay in the same calling wherein he's called. It's talking about an individual, but he's, he's saying he's called. So he's calling an individual the church. Sometimes the word church is used concerning a small group, a small group of people. Sometimes it means an assembly, and that's why I was going to mention a while ago in Ephesians, in, in a, actually in Acts chapter 19, in verse 39 and 41, when the magistrate was talking about the assembly, he used the word assembly, but that was the word church. He said, you have an unlawful church, and he was talking about all these silversmiths that had come together. So the word church means a group. Sometimes it's a small group. Sometimes it's an entire community. Sometimes it involves those that are in heaven. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 23. And sometimes it refers to a group, and all of them are not, when they're called out, all of them are not in the body. As a matter of fact, the writer, John, the apostle, talked about the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation when he, when he mentions the seven churches of Asia. And he talks about the church at Ephesus. And he said at that point, he said that, that uh, they were, they had left their first love and they were in danger of losing their candlestick. Wow. The candlestick represented the fact that they were belonging to Jesus Christ. 
So sometimes you can have a church, and we've, we've taken that word and make it, made it a religious word that means, what do we think it means? When we say church, I, I used it wrong this morning, as a matter of fact. I used the term that I didn't use it in the Bible sense. I talked to my daughter in, in uh, Phoenix, in Arizona, in actually Mesa, and she said, what are you going to do today, Dad? And I said, we're going to go to church. Well, that's, that's not a, that term isn't really correct, but, but we use it, you see. It's a generic term, and it can refer to a lot of different things, the word church. The word body only refers to one thing. That's the body of Jesus Christ. And those who have been added to that body have become part of the body of Christ. And those who are in the body of Christ are sometimes called ears, eyes, etc. Have you ever heard anybody say something like this? Well, I want you to be my eyes. Or somebody says, I'm going to let you be my ears because I can't hear well. Or somebody says, I can't go there, but I want you to go for me. Well, when we talk about the body of Christ and the members, we're talking about all the members who can do the things that Jesus wants done. You see? We're all together. And so, some of us walk, some of us crawl, some of us stub our toes, some of us see well, some of us hear well, some of us talk. You remember Moses? When uh, God said, I want you to go down and get my people, Moses said, I, I can't talk. So God said, you've got a brother, and I'm going to get your brother, and he's going to talk for you. That was Aaron. Well, we have a brother. Maybe I can't talk, but I've got a brother, Michael, over here. I'm going to let him talk. You see what we're talking about? The body of Christ is made up, composed of the members of the body that have a cohesiveness to them. They are together and they support one another. And they're supporting one another in the most majestic, critical work in this world, and that is saving souls, telling the story of Jesus. Well, you say that's the church's responsibility. Well, and of course, the church is, is also called the body. That, that term is used in relation to it. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30, talking about the call. It says, We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to His purpose. Whom He did foreknow, them He did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. He said, I want to make these people like me. That, they might be the, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, He called. Whom He called, He justified. Whom He justified, them He also glorified. So, when we're, when we're talking about the called, we're talking about those who have been called, that have heard the message of Jesus Christ, and have responded to it. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called unto the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. In the book of Ephesians, the one we've been in, in 1 chapter 22 and 23, he says, He's put all things under His feet, and give him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Okay? So the church is his body. But sometimes the church isn't his body. Sometimes the church strays. In, in Revelation chapter 3 at verse 4, 
there, there was a group there that uh, at Laodicea, and he says, he says, I have a few there that have not soiled their garments. A few. If we remember what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 22, he talked about, he talked about a, a, a king who was going to give a feast, a marriage feast. He said, okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to invite all my guests. He invited everyone and nobody wanted to come. So he took his servants and said, go out and, and get some more guests. And so they went out and tried to get some more guests. And some of them got abusive about turning down the invitation. Till finally he said, go out in the highways and byways and get the strangers that are going by. And bring them in. And they did. And they filled up the banquet hall. And they were having a party. A, a wedding party. And he came across one that did not have a wedding garment. One that wasn't dressed for the wedding. That's in Matthew 22 and I believe it's about verse 14. And he, he cast that one out. And then he said, many are called, but few are chosen. So maybe if you're called by the voice of Jesus Christ, but you don't put on your wedding garment, you see what's going on? You don't get dressed for the wedding. And that's what happens. You say, well, that's the church. Aren't they all, all the church saved? The body's saved. He's the savior of the body. The church is saved as long as the church incorporates into the body. As long as you're in the body, as long as you let Jesus Christ live in you, He says your body is, is, your, your body is the body of Jesus Christ. It's, it's the temple of God. It's His body, the fullness of Him that fills all in all. Anyway, we have another reference also. And these people were called the separated. Now you can see that in Ephesus, can't you? These people were going to be different. They were going to be what, what the Bible calls saints. So, in Romans chapter 1 at verse 7, the writer, the Apostle Paul again, says to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. He said, I want you to be different. I want you to be different. I'm thinking in terms of physical characteristics. These people in Ephesus were different. How? Well, the silversmiths knew that they, that they were losing some of their craftsmen. And the Jews knew that there were people who were losing, they were losing people coming to the synagogues. They were losing people to Jesus Christ. Because these people that walked after Jesus Christ were being separated. They were not walking the same path the others were they weren't going to the orgies they weren't going going down and buying from the silversmiths they probably weren't even doing any any business with the temple but that probably made life pretty pretty harsh and hard for them but these people in ephesus were separated first corinthians 1 at verse 2 says under the church of god which is at corinth he's talking about the church to them that are sanctified to those that are separated Okay, you're separated. You're separated for the work of God. God is not author, uh, the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Now, here's, a, here's an interesting statement. Sometimes we say, well, what name should the church use? And we go to Romans 16, 16. Salute one another, holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. 
Well, what is he talking about? The churches of Christ salute you. It had to be, it had to be different groups of people, like in Ephesus, like in Colossae, like in Damascus, like in Antioch, like in wherever they were, had been called out. That's probably what he's talking about. He's talking about those people. But he says, he says in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 12 and 13, now notice what he said. He said, salute one another, holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. Then in 2 Corinthians 13, 12 and 13, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints salute you. So instead of using the term church, he uses the term saint because he's talking about someone that's separating. In addition to this, when we're talking about the body of Christ, when we're talking about those who are following Jesus Christ, they're also called a family. They're also called children of God. Galatians chapter 3, see if I can get the film up again. I must not have a touch. Somebody say... Alakazam. <laughs> there we go. The children of God. Galatians chapter 3, 26 and 27. You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. As many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Hebrews 2 at verse 4 and 5 talks about the familial relationship. So... Hebrews 2, verse 4 and 5 says, Every house is built by some man. He that built all things is God. And Moses was verily faithful in all his house as a servant. Now, when he's talking about Moses faithful in his house, he was not talking about Moses' personal family. Because Moses' personal family was not faithful. But he's talking about the nation of Israel. And he's saying Moses was faithful in all his house. He was taking care of his house, Moses was. And that house was the house of Israel. So now then he says, Moses is faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which are to be spoken after, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope steadfast unto the end? Okay. A family. We are a family. Now what, what I've been saying, what I've been trying to say is that the one body, the one body he's talking about are the people who make up the body of Christ. You say, that's the church. Well, that's where they come from. Because all the church isn't the body, as we've already noted. Some of them can be, it can be few and some can be many. The church can be many. You could say, well, here's the church, church at uh, Orchard Street. All of these are the body? Maybe, maybe not. It depends on whether or not the individual has subjected themselves to Jesus Christ, let the Spirit of God come into their heart, let the Son of God come into their heart, and attach themselves to the rest of the body. Connected. Connected. How serious is this? If I'm walking down the street with my friend, and I'm, I'm 80 years old, and we come to a point where I stumble... And my brother reaches over and grabs my arm and holds me up. That's what happens when you're in the body. If your brother stumbles, if your sister stumbles, if you fall, someone is there to pick you up, hold you up, help you up. And, and it, it can't be done when we're isolated. You can't say, okay, I'm the church, I'm the body, 
But I'm not going to be around others that are the body or the church. I'm just not going to be around them. I, I'm a lone wolf. I'll go out on a mountain and I'll worship God up on a mountain. Now, there's only one person that I know of that went to heaven by himself. Who knows who it was? He went in a flaming chariot. Elijah. He's the only one who went up there by himself. You say, well, Jesus went by himself. You think so? I think he taught, he, he was looking at a man across on the cross next to him. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So, so Jesus didn't go by himself. And Jesus is not going to be there by himself because he wants you there too. But when we talk about going to heaven, when we talk about preaching the gospel, when we talk about getting the strength and the succor that we need and the community that we need, we have to talk about sticking together. We've got to stick together. We are the one body. And we have to stick together. When the church first started, in Acts chapter 2, when the body was first being formed, and people obeyed the gospel. It says that that day were there about 3,000 souls were added unto them, added unto the church. And the Lord added to the church daily such as were being saved. And the Bible says, though they continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, that means eating their meals together, breaking the bread and prayers. They all stayed together. You know how long they stayed together? They had come for, they had come for the Pentecost feast. The Feast of Pentecost. It was said that a Jew, normally, that was not from that area, saved all of his or her life, all of their life, to go to one Pentecost. One feast. In their lifetime. Well, they, they had to bring all they, all they were going to bring. The Pentecost was a time when they came together and they shared everything they had. So here were these thousands of Jews that had come into the city of Jerusalem during the Pentecost, and the gospel was preached on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 people obeyed the gospel. What are they going to eat? What are they going to eat? Where are they going to go? The Bible tells us that not only did they break their bread, they continued steadfasting, breaking their bread, but daily from house to house, they continued house to house, breaking bread. And then later on, the Bible tells us that there were some widows there and they weren't getting their share of the breaking of bread and so they had to, had to petition the apostles so they could make sure that everybody got taken care of. So everybody was sticking together. They were staying together. They were almost in a communal life. Almost in a communal life. Until a fellow came along by the name of Saul. And Saul saw this and he said, I've got to break this up. I'm going to tear this down. I'm going to rip this apart. And he did. He made havoc of the church. Stephen got up and preached a sermon. And when he talked about Jesus Christ being the Son of God, they gnashed on him with, his, with their teeth and they stoned him to death. And the man that was holding the colts of the young men and putting his whole thing together was a fellow by the name of Saul. He gave consent to the death of a man preaching Jesus. And then the Bible continues to tell us in chapter 8 that he went, he made havoc of the church. He went from house to house. There, there's the word church again. It doesn't mean that he, he jumped into the assembly. It means that he went after everybody who had been called. 
He made havoc of the church. He went into the houses and he hailed men and women and took them to prison. Can you imagine that? I, the only way I can think of this is during the time of Nazi Germany's rule. When they went into, into Poland, they went into Warsaw, and they were looking for Jews. And they were, trying to, they were take, taking them captive, and they taking them, putting them in slave camps, and they putting them in the, in, the, uh, in the grave, basically. They were torturing and killing them because they were, they were of that community. They knew where to find them. How did Paul know where to find a Christian? How did he know? Well, you say, they were all together. Not always. Matter of fact, he, he got them all disrupted. He scattered them. They said they, went, they were scattered, went everywhere. But they went everywhere preaching the gospel. But they did go everywhere. So what did Saul do? He went to the priest and the elders of, of the Jews. That's, that's how important this stuff was to them. They didn't want Jesus to be the Christ. They went to the elders of the, of the Jewish synagogue and said, he, he said, I want some letters that will authorize me to go into other cities and get these people and bring them back. So off he went. Off he went. And he, he describes that. He describes himself and, and what he did and, and how he did it. In uh, chapter 22, verse 9 through 11, when he's talking to Agrippa, he said he hailed men and women and he brought them back and he made them blaspheme. And he killed them. How did he find them? You know what he did? He had letters from the leaders to the synagogues. So he went to the synagogues and said, Hey, do you know anybody that believes that Jesus is the Christ? And the synagogue, the people in the synagogue, ratted them out. They ratted them out. Yeah, we know them. We know some. Here's who they are. And so he went after him. That's what he was doing. Jesus stopped him on the road to Damascus, and he stopped him short. And he, when he uh, appeared in a blinding light, Saul said, "Who are you? Who are you?" Jesus said, "I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you persecute. Whom you persecute? Because he lived in the bodies of his believers. He lived in their body." He was, he was persecuting the actual body of Jesus in the believers. So, once they said, okay, here's one of them, he went after them. Well, you know, that was, that was a tough way to do it, I guess. He was stopped in that, but that didn't stop the persecution. It continued on. And in Hebrews 10.25, we find that there are a lot of people who said, hey, we don't, want, we don't want to be persecuted. A lot of believers, a lot of those who said they were faithful to Jesus Christ, said we don't want to be persecuted and we don't want to be identified. If you were in China today, if you were wanting to worship Jesus Christ, you'd have to do it underground. You'd have to do it sub rosa. You'd have to be somewhere where they didn't know where you were meeting. Matter of fact, if you went into Arabia and some of the Arabian countries and Iran and Iraq and so forth, you couldn't even take your Bible with you. If, you. if you took one, you'd have to take it in secretly. And you certainly couldn't meet openly. So if they have a mind to come get you, how are they going to find you? Well, the first thing a guy would say, well, I, I, don't want to be, I don't want to meet with a bunch of these folks. 
Because if they find out where we're meeting, they'll get us. So Hebrews 10.25 says, Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Some of them in that day and time quit assembling. Why? They didn't want to be persecuted. They did not want to be persecuted. Assume we're going to be persecuted today. Assume you live in a community where it is unlawful for you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Assume it's this community. Assume it's Gig Harbor. Assume it's Lakewood. Assume it's Lakeview. Assume it's Bonnie Lake. Assume that with me. Think with me a minute. Okay, it's unlawful for you to believe. Not, not to meet. It's unlawful for you to believe and to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. How are the authorities going to find you? Your neighbor's going to rat you out. Somebody's going to say, hey, I know somebody like that. So my question to you is, would your neighbors point you out? Would your neighbors say, I know one of these members of the body of Christ. I know one, and I don't know where they live. Or would somebody say, oh, I know some folks that go to church. Or would they say, I know a believer. I know someone who will confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's easy for us to do it right now, isn't it? It's easy to confess it. And I say it all the time. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of the living God. It doesn't cost me a thing. But sometimes when I'm in a group of people that I kind of feel ashamed, do I kind of feel ashamed? I believe that Jesus is the Christ. Can we say it then? That's what he was telling these poor folks at Ephesus to do. You stick together. Get some strength one another. And you uphold the oneness. The one oneness of the Spirit. You uphold the unity of the faith. The unity of the faith is Jesus Christ. God help you do that. Let's stand and sing the song of invitation.